Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about libraries and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm delighted to have on the show today the artist Raquel Robinovich, whose exhibition Raquel Robinovich, The Reading Room, is currently on display in the south transept of Thompson Memorial Library here at Vassar College through December 20th. We're talking in her studio in Rhinebeck, and we're going to be discussing the works in that exhibition, and also we'll be discussing Raquel's life and work in general. Hello, Raquel. Hi. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me here into your beautiful studio. Just to start, I thought maybe you might be willing to talk about your background a bit. You were born in Argentina. I was born in Argentina in 1929. Mm -hmm. My parents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. They were Jewish, mm -hmm. coming from Russia and Romania, uh -huh. and they settled in Argentina. So that's my background regarding my family. And I grew up, I was born in Buenos Aires, mm -hmm. but my early years were in Córdoba, uh -huh. which is a provincial city in the heart of the country. There I went to a school, and I had a teacher, art teacher, who used to teach the European way, mm -hmm. which is from his own studio or atelier. Mm -hmm. He was an Italian painter called Ernesto Farina, and he was quite wonderful, and I learned not only how to paint and how to make art, but also he was very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So th through him I was able to discover the magic of painting, mm -hmm. the wonderful world of art, which is endless and infinite and wonderful. Mm -hmm. So it went beyond just the technical aspect uh -huh. of being an artist. So I'm very grateful to him because he was real inspiration throughout my life. Uh -huh. Then when I was young, in my early 20s, I was able to go to Europe. So I studied art in Edinburgh uh -huh. at the university. I did study in Paris with an artist called André Lot, mm -hmm. also in his atelier. Mm -hmm. And then I studied art history at the Sorbonne in Paris. Uh -huh. And that is my background regarding, you know, the years when I was developing my own style and I was coming into my own way of making art. Yeah. Eventually, then I lived also in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But the most important for me really was what I got from museums. It was, uh -huh. yes, wonderful museums, mm -hmm. you know, all yeah. over Europe. So I used to go to all these museums very often. And I think that was a great teaching for me. It mm -hmm. was very profound and very direct. Things that I couldn't get, for instance, in Argentina, where yeah. we don't have that. Uh -huh. Eventually, I returned to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and there we settled. I was married, and I have three children mm -hmm. in, in Buenos Aires. Uh -huh. But eventually, we moved out again because of military dictatorships mm -hmm. in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Those were very frequent, mm -hmm. usually very bloody dictatorships, mm -hmm. really. A lot of persecution, discrimination... So many people, including me and my family, emigrated. Mm -hmm. And we came to the U.S. For those in, under those circumstances in 1967. At the time, we were famous, unfortunately, for all these really, really extreme, bloody dictatorships. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, many people disappeared, yeah. 
you know, torture or disappearances, yeah. yeah. So was it in art school then in Argentina with your instructor that you decided to become an artist? Did he convince you to become an artist or it was something you always wanted to do? Was that why you were in art school, I suppose? Well, uh, yeah, since, since an early yeah. age, I uh-huh. think I wanted, I knew I wanted to be an artist. You did, uh-huh. Yeah. Though my parents didn't approve and they thought that I should have like a real career. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to medical school for maybe four, five oh, years. Oh, interesting, medical yes, school. Yes. Oh. But I never stopped going to art school. Mm-hmm. Oh. That, that was the agreement. But oh. eventually I was, how can I say, mature enough to say this is what I really want and then I dropped out of oh. medical school. Oh, interesting. So were there artists who influenced you? I mean, not necessarily living artists, but uh, when you were going to the museums in Europe, were there artists whose work that re- right. really... I remember particularly drawn to Clay, Mondrian, uh-huh. uh-huh. Braque, yeah, uh-huh. Velázquez mm-hmm. in Madrid. Uh-huh. Those were really yeah. great inspiration for yeah, me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So other influences, Ed Reinhardt at all, or uh, Malevich, or... or I, uh, I love Reinhardt. Yeah, I like him too. He's a right. genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, his black right. painting, especially. Right. So, yeah, because in Reinhardt also there is a spiritual. I mean, he sees art as a spiritual ah, activity. Yes, he does. Yeah, uh-huh. making art is a spiritual does, action. Yeah. Yeah. Political also. Yes. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I was very attracted to poetry and literature, uh-huh. and I think uh-huh. that also was a great influence. Mm. Even today, yes. for instance, one yes. of the projects I'm engaged in. It's an ongoing project called When Silence Becomes Poetry. Uh-huh. They are, I was going to show you afterwards. Uh-huh. There are different suites which I do. Each one is dedicated to a different poet. Uh-huh. For instance, Robert Kelly, uh-huh. Pablo Neruda, uh-huh. Jorge Luis Borges, uh-huh. St. John of the Cross, uh-huh. T.S. Eliot, and many others. Uh-huh. So those also are sorts of inspiration uh-huh. for me. Not in a literal way, it's not illustrations for mm-hmm. a particular poem. It's just where they come from, yeah. which is a common source I find in their work and mine, which is silence. We can also call it the dark. Yeah. Yes. Which is, for me, it's hard to describe in words. Mm-hmm. I call it the source. Yeah. Because it's a place or space or mythological space where we go to, where language is not yet articulated, Mm -hmm. but it's a source where everything for me comes from. Mm. And I think that art for me sort of enacts the emergence from that source. Uh So their poetry and art come together for me. Yeah, Yeah, interesting. So were you drawn to the graphic arts as well as painting then, as an artist, Uh, I mean, in terms of media? Painting and drawing, drawing, and then eventually I got... Very, very involved with sculpture. Uh-huh. Interesting. This is an aside. I was just talking to somebody about this because I had a student writing on Bergman's The Seventh Seal, and uh, you know, it starts out with a quote from Revelations, Silence, and then she went on there to write a beautiful paper bringing in John Cage and the whole notion of silence uh-huh. and the silence being a source of spirituality, right. even, in, even in the Bergman there. So right. Really interesting idea. And this is a kind of an idea that really has taken hold of you, isn't it? Uh, this I notion so, of silence yeah. and yeah. darkness also. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Which, dark doesn't mean literal darkness. Uh-huh. Well, it could be literal too, uh-huh. but it means it doesn't mean something sad or something yeah. that you want to dismiss because it doesn't have literal light. Yeah. To me, it's like I find the light going to the dark. 
Mm-hmm. And some of the books, for instance, about my work, one of them is called The Dark is the Source of Light. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which means awakening, wisdom, revelation, if you like. And I think, I'm sure that my art comes from that source. Ah, interesting. So your exhibit at Vassar's Thompson Library seems, to me as a librarian, completely suited to what, for me, libraries are all about. And it isn't just that your works involve printmaking and papermaking, but they are metaphysically or ontologically suited to the space that they're being exhibited in. And they seem to comment and partake in the space of the library and the activities that go on there. So the question here is, I guess, what made you want to exhibit in a library, and why did you name the exhibition The Reading Room? Beginning, I think, 2002, probably, I began an ongoing group of work, a series, mm-hmm. called River Library. Uh-huh. And I call it River Library because all of the drawings that I made within that series were made using as a drawing medium mud from rivers. Yes, uh-huh. Right. And to me, mud from rivers has the potential of embodying mm-hmm. text uh-huh. in a way that could be both literal and metaphorical. Uh-huh. Because mud settles in the riverbed, yes. you know, the sediment, mm-hmm. layer upon layer. And each layer, really, scientists would go into that, not me, will know that each layer maybe is a different period in history, yes. or maybe different civilizations have been settled along the river banks of, the, of many yeah. rivers, say in Egypt, the Nile, the Ganges, etc., mm-hmm. etc., so everything that goes into the river gets settled down as mm-hmm. sediment. Mm-hmm. So I call it unwritten text because embedded in the mud, all those histories are invisibly in the bottom of the river. Yeah, there's a science called stratigraphy that reads time. Right, but, this, I, but, I, but the reading is yeah. really metaphorical. Yeah, uh-huh. and because I use actual mud, uh-huh. I will say that those drawings are at the same time. Literal and metaphoric. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And because they are like books in the sense they are a text, yes. and the drawings are like pages, like yeah. manuscripts, yes. I thought of calling it library. library. I see. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you see, you know, if you look at my studio or you look at the exhibition, you will see that many of these pieces look like really open books. Mm-hmm. So it was appropriate for me to call it library. Mm-hmm. And the connection of it showing that in a real library like Vasa, mm-hmm. uh-huh. it was an extraordinary experience for uh-huh. me. It was the context yes. in yeah. which it would be shown. Yeah. It means so much more in that context, Very and it reflects many. on everything else in the library. Right, a like a library that. within a library. Yeah, that's how I felt too. So, and um, called the reading room because in, a re- in an actual library, a reading room is a space for reading. Yes, uh-huh. And also because, for me, the art I make, the art I contemplate, it's not enough to look, it's not enough to see the appearance Mm -hmm. of what we're looking at. We have actually to read it because art is a language. So you have to go deep into the work to connect, which is not on the surface, but which is there implicit in the work itself. So I like to call it a reading. That's fascinating. So is 
the act of reading itself a sort of performance of this movement from the dark to consciousness or the darkness to light? I mean, is the reading well, a way of performing this? Metaphorically. Metaphorically, yes, yes, yes yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I think it is important. Yeah, Otherwise, uh, you just walk by and you say, what a pretty color, or what a lovely um, portrait, and then that's it. Yeah. This is something that photography can do very well. Uh-huh. So if we really yes, connect true. with the language of art, yeah, uh, we have to go deeper and deeper yeah. and connect with that inner source. Yeah, that's uh, what I call it a reading. Yeah. That takes time. It's, you have to spend a lot of time with the work. Uh-huh. I remember, for instance, when Mary Kay and I uh-huh. were in dialogue at the opening. Yeah. She asked, for instance, if I thought that people needed a flashlight. Oh. To see to the see work. The work. <laughs> and I said, no, mm-hmm. you need time. Mm-hmm. Ah. You have to spend a lot of time, yeah. and then things will begin yes. to re- be revealed yeah. from being hidden. Yeah, the, and interesting, because your work often contains signs, symbols, letters, but they're not really clear that they're in the, in the darkness, and yeah. it takes a while to see them, actually. You have to sit there and look. Uh, yes. yeah. Sometimes I compare that with being an archaeologist, ah. because... You know, I dig out uh-huh. mud from uh-huh. the invisibility uh, yes, uh-huh. of the, of the riverbed. Mm-hmm. Like archaeologists will dig out in yes. the soil, yeah. and then I bring the mud into the light and giving visibility to that is what an archaeologist will do, yeah. revealing what is hidden uh-huh. in the site. Yeah, interesting. The word graphic, graphos, comes from the word dig, you know. Uh, right. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so. And archaeology also. We have an exhibit related to the exhibit in the Loeb Center now, past time, the, the geological exhibit, uh, which is in the Francis Lehman Loeb Center. We have a small exhibit on view in my library, and it involves documents, some of them very old documents, including a 17th century treatise by Thomas Burnett, which features an illustration of Noah's Ark grounded on Mount Arabat which by coincidence seems to inform the, the whole spirit of the exhibit. This is an odd occurrence for me because I put the exhibit together. I only wrote the catalog for the exhibit and tied all these things together after yeah. I put the objects in the case and didn't really know how they were connected. Right. So, the, this, the, yeah. But there was a, an idea that came forward from this arc, and it had to do to some extent with the etymology of the word arc, you know, which comes from the Latin word arca, which is related to the Ark of the Covenant. Right. Arc means in Latin uh, originally a case where documents exactly. are kept, of course may also relate to the word archaeology. I'm not sure about that. This all makes perfect sense to me. You know, the archive, the library, and the geologic association, yes. the digging and the stratification and the sediments that you work with. It, so, it all fits together. It yeah. seems to, yeah. yeah, it seems to. And also, yeah. remember, you mentioned when I read your um, brochure, uh-huh. and I like the concept that the earth is an archive. Yes, the earth is an archive. Like Noah's Ark, it, like carries, it carries mm-hmm. forward to us yes. through time. Mm-hmm. This past that otherwise is invisible now, it's all been buried in the earth, exactly. you know. And that past includes our own ancestry, you know, yeah. that people like Darwin have looked to the geologists to help us understand. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's very interesting. Uh, all science comes out of this darkness, doesn't yeah. it? All, all we know about natural history, That's anyway, right. for sure. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, well, we talked about River Library, which in part consists of these rolled scrolls whose contents are actually hidden from view. And then the darkness is really interesting also, I think, here. Libraries are very much about light and darkness. I mean, we think about this a lot as librarians. Mm-hmm. We're always thinking about candle mm-hmm. power and uh, what mm-hmm. it takes when we're designing libraries, That's anyway, right. to read. But also there are about 
darkness in some ways, and that we associate libraries often with darkness. Certainly the stacks are dark places. You know, they never seem bright enough, uh, especially in Gothic libraries mm-hmm. like Thompson. Going down into my stacks always strikes me a bit like the act of going down into a mine or a cave when I go down, you know, to find mm-hmm. a book. For instance, and this brings to mind Alberto Manguel's book, The Library at Night, actually, where he writes about Borges mm-hmm. and the way darkness can enhance the imagination right. there. And uh, the, the story with Borges is that he became blind. Well, he had a, a disease that he inherited that was going to cause him to be blind, and he was told by his doctors he shouldn't read difficult texts that were hard to see. But he got engrossed in a detective novel one day on a train, and he was riding on the train, and they went into a tunnel, and he kept reading it. And when they came out of the tunnel, he was blind, essentially. He ruined his eyes reading the detective novel, although they were deteriorating anyway. Would you like to know how I met him? Yes, that's yes. a wonderful story. I've heard you tell it once, so but oh, you should tell well, it for the audience. So yeah, It was a wonderful mm-hmm. experience for me, because I love his work. I think I've read every book ah. he has written. Mm-hmm. And I like his poetry too. Actually, one of the poets in my series of When Silence Becomes Poetry, one of them is Borges. Uh When I returned to Buenos Aires from Paris in the early 60s, -hmm. I was working on a series of paintings that I was going to show in an exhibition there at the gallery. And I was just about to finish the series, and then I got in the mail a book Mm -hmm. that a friend of mine sent to me from Paris, Mm that was called in English, The Dark is Light Enough. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was the perfect title for the group of works I was Uh painting. And that's the title that I gave it. Mm -hmm. And I I, I thought it was a very poetic expression. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find an equivalent in Spanish as poetic. Uh I have a lot of difficulty having the title in Spanish with that intonation or beauty or especially about the poetry of the title. So I thought of Borges, uh-huh. and at the time he was um, the director of the public library. Yeah. So I went to see him there, mm-hmm. and we used to talk a lot, and at the end of the day, when the library will close, we will cross the street to sit on a bench uh-huh. in a sort of garden. Uh-huh. And that happened during many months, you know, like every so often few days a week, and he gave me a very beautiful translation. Mm. Do you know any Spanish? No, I don't, but he translated it himself then, yes. He did the translation, it was very beautifully translated. And also he translated the introduction to the book Mm. that became the introduction to my exhibition. Uh, We do have listeners who know Spanish, we want to give the the Spanish title. Spanish is La Oscuridad Tiene Su Luz. Uh And so time went by. Mm And the exhibition uh, date for the opening was approaching, so I invited him to the opening. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I will not go to your opening. And I said, why? And then he said, because I'm blind and I cannot see. (laughs) And I didn't notice that. You you didn't didn't know. know. No, talking. You've been talking to him every day uh, after work. Yes, it was so natural for him and didn't know. Yeah, fascinating. So so. that was my experience, Yeah. yeah. And c- considering your whole exhibit was about darkness, you know, well, and it your was called the, yeah, the yeah. dark is light enough. And, and, and the theme of much of your work is all through the rest of your I life. I think that yeah. was the yeah. beginning of my exploration uh-huh. in different media yeah. or different situations, like in painting, drawing, yeah. sculpture eventually. Exploration how something emerges uh-huh. 
from the dark ah, into the light. Uh -huh. How the invisible becomes visible, yeah. which is a paradox, ah, really. Yeah. But I think that paradox is like the essence of my artwork. Uh -huh. And I think it's, um, you know, it's at the core of my art practice. Uh -huh. And this has been ever since the 60s. Also, this is interesting to me. The day when I did with Mary Kay the installation of the work at the library, come by chance, we have these two tables yes. at an angle uh -huh. with works on both sides. Uh -huh. One is called Temples of the Blind Windows, and on the other side, Threshold. And just by looking at that, it was like a revelation to me that if you go from one table to the other, uh -huh. it's 40 years apart. And the darkness, say, in the 70s, was not that dark because you could read the numbers and the letters yes. and the lines. Uh -huh. But if you, 40 years later, there was a progression oh, uh, toward more oh, invisibility. Oh. And you can barely see oh. thresholds. That's amazing. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't conscious exhibit, yeah. and I wasn't yeah. aware of that. And then I yeah. saw that oh. physically in the exhibition. That's interesting that you didn't intend it, you know, right. when you were working, but uh, the right. meaning is still there for you. So, the meaning is still there. Very interesting. Fascinating, actually. Uh, fascinating. It says a lot about artist's intention, doesn't it? Or the intention of the work itself, in a way. Right. You know, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so there are theories about art becoming manifest in the literature now that I've found myself drawn to, especially we had an end of St. Vincent Millay exhibit in the art library two years ago, and it was about her object. So I started reading about thing theory, and then and that got me into Heidegger's essay on the origin of the work of art. And he comes to mind when I look at your work here very much since... He talks about these kind of two universes. One is the world, what he calls the world, and one is the earth. The world is opening and uh, self-disclosing, and the earth covers up and hides things from us. And, the, and then the work of art exists between the two, with one foot in each camp. It has to do with a repose that the artist strikes between the two. I like that. Has, yeah. yeah, but it's beautiful. It is a beautiful Beauty, theory, beautiful, a powerful beautiful, theory. Yeah, beautifully so. said. Yeah. But it seems to work with you. With your I art. think so. Oh, I yeah. just connected that. Yeah. yeah, very much. And it gives life to things in a strange way uh, that, that, that are not objects because they're still becoming, I guess. So anyway, we talked about River Library and mud. Can you talk a little bit more about the River Library sort of generally? You use rivers from different places in the world, and the river is important here also. It's not just the sediment. Right, yes, yeah. Yeah. The river became important both for the works on paper, uh -huh. River Library, and the sculpture by the Hudson River uh -huh. called Emergencies, uh -huh. in which I use stone Again, from the earth. Yeah, it was very interesting. It's so different from your flat work. Well, to me, they're all connected mm -hmm. because it's another manifestation for me of exploring how the invisible becomes visible. Yeah. And with the stone sculpture, this is quite amazing to me because it's been constructed at the edge of the river. Uh -huh. It's a tidal river. Yeah. So when the tide goes up to be high, it's a six-hour progression. Mm -hmm. The sculptures get totally covered, so they mm -hmm. are invisible. Uh -huh. When the waters recede another six hours to go into low tide, mm -hmm. gradually they are revealed mm -hmm. until they are totally on view at low tide. Uh -huh. And the stones are local, either from the river mm -hmm. or local quarries. I don't carve them. I just use them as they are. Uh -huh. I pile them up. So there are configurations 
that resemble in a way the way the, the Earth, I mean the planet Earth, mm-hmm. is contracted, which is totally stone, uh-huh. whether you see it or not. Yes. Because if you go to the yes. core of the Earth, it's all stone. It's all stone, yes. But also the stone manifests sometimes, dropping out, yeah. and other times you have to excavate to, for the stones to be revealed, uh-huh. like in the quarries. Yeah. Right. So that was very important to me in terms of another manifestation of the invisibility and visibility mm-hmm. in my work. You go from nothing to everything, and from everything to nothing. Yeah, it's hidden, and it's not hidden. Uh, right. The river. Uh, right. And also, over time, the river tends to interact with the sculptures mm-hmm. in a way that the stones begin to drift apart uh-huh, uh-huh. and then they eventually they are under the water completely so they disappear from view but they're still there uh-huh. Uh-huh. so it's a question what is it what uh-huh. you see yeah if the sculptures are there or not there you know it's a question uh-huh. that you have many answers to yeah. for me they're there even if you don't see them yeah. in order to see them you have to look at your watch to know what time to go to <laughs> see them don't you i mean so time is involved that. here of course with the right, river so yeah. The river's about time to some right. extent, isn't it? So. Which in many ways parallel our existence mm-hmm. because we also, as human beings or animals in this planet, we come into existence and then eventually we die and uh-huh. disappear from view. Ah, yes. So it's the stages of life in yeah. that sense. So to some extent you're what we used to call a land artist here. Uh, yes. And so were you drawn to people like Richard Long when he was starting out yes, in those I years? Know. Yes, yeah. Right, yeah. The British artist, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your exhibit, and, and I mentioned this to Patricia Fagan when I talked to her about the exhibit in the Loeb Center, your exhibit in the library leaves me with a sort of sense of expanse insofar as this is in some way geological art, you know, it's art of the earth, and geology knows no geography, you know, it's all-encompassing in a way, and if you really think of it in these terms, it's a planetary science, the science of geology. And that would then eventually take into its can natural history, all of natural history, and, and the history of the planets and other star systems. You know, it all becomes part of this. So then recently, I have to say, the only good news I've heard in the news, it's all bad news anymore, but um, very dark. It was last week's report of a new Mars lander that was setting down on Mars uh-huh. um, successfully. And it's giving us photographs now of, of what it collects. And it's there to collect scientific information and also geological specimens. And then geology is also about time. It's mm-hmm. about deep time. So it's this expansiveness then in terms of time and space that I find exciting about these exhibits, your yeah. exhibit and Patty's exhibit too. There's a boundlessness about it. And so is this sense of wholeness in a way, I guess mm-hmm. you could call it, or belonging it yeah. comes to in the end. Is that part of what you're looking for in your art? Is that why you're attracted to geology, I guess? It's, yeah, I, I relate to when you said uh, no geography, yeah. because rivers, they don't know any boundaries. No, no. Yeah. Countries and politics and whatnot yeah. tend to divide the uh, world. Yeah. This is my country, this is yeah. my... Don't you dare to step into the other people's country, you know? Yeah. Like, for instance, now with Mexico. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the wall, yes. Yeah, yeah or Korea, yeah, yeah. for instance, yeah, yeah. North Korea and South yeah. Korea. But, for instance, one of the rivers I used, it was from Korea, uh-huh. and very beautifully and peacefully the river went from north to south, yeah. not being <laughs> yeah. bothered with the geography yeah. and the politics, yeah. right? So, in a way, I connect with this expansiveness mm-hmm. that you mentioned, 
because it's beyond geography. Uh, interesting. And then the rivers themselves, the sediments, are not all the same with every river, are they? They're very different oh, they from river very to river. Different, yes, yeah. Yeah. different histories, mm-hmm. what they call it unwritten histories. Uh-huh. They are also different textures, different colors, and different density. Mm-hmm. And so each series or each group of work with the different rivers, you can see all of them here, even at the exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, the Nile, which is very, in a way, polluted or ancient, huh? it's wonderfully clear in the sediment. Oh, is it? That's very interesting. Right. Or the Ganges, which is extremely polluted, mm-hmm. is like golden. So what's the Hudson? The Hudson is more muddy, is or it, huh? sometimes it's clayish. Yeah. It depends where in the, in the yeah. Hudson you do that. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the Beacon area, where there used to be brick factories, mm-hmm. it was very clayish. Oh. It came from the river, all the yeah. clay came yeah. from the uh-huh. river. Further north, it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So one day, at the end of completing one of the pieces, mm-hmm. I did by the river, emergencies. I think maybe the first piece I did complete. Mm-hmm. I stayed for six hours at low tide to observe the gradual changes, the slow changes. Oh. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, I realized that the mud was always covered. It was never exposed. Oh. Oh, interesting. Always remain in the riverbed. Uh-huh. And that triggered my interest in taking some out, digging it out, uh-huh. to see whether I could use it for art. And uh-huh. then it became my drawing medium. Yeah. So it's, it's part of your support then, right? right. You work on, you That's know. how it came about for yeah. me. And then at the time I was planning to go to India, mm-hmm. so I went to Varanasi, which is a very sacred city mm-hmm. with a sacred river, which is the Ganges. Mm-hmm. And there I began this whole project of the River Library. Oh. That was 2002. So the texts that you use, you use poetry, but you use other texts too. And some of them, I mean, apart from their being cryptic because they're hard to see sometimes, uh-huh. they're cryptic to begin with, including uh, you use the Fibonacci sequence in, in, in one of your series. In the Temple of the Windows, yes. Yeah. So is there a kind of cryptic aspect to what you're doing here intentionally in, in that, uh, well, crypts are caves, right? Uh, I mean, it is, it is a dark space in and of itself. And all this calls up notions of magic. And so it reminds me of John Dee a bit uh, as a librarian, this kind of mystical, is it wonderful ca- Kabbalistic... Oh, he did wonderful work. Oh, yes, yeah, a beautiful writer yeah. he is, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a kind of Kabbalistic aspect. Well, during the maybe. 70s, when mm-hmm. this, uh, I began working with... Uh, with that series, The Temple of the Blind Windows. Yes, uh-huh. I was very interested in what is was called sacred geometry. Ah, yes, uh-huh. So there was a lot to look into, you know, from magic squares yes, that uh-huh. they used, yeah. and then the Fibonacci series to create proportions uh-huh. in a certain sequence. And so that was reflected a lot in the work I did. Uh-huh. The Fibonacci series in the sense how I divided the space mm-hmm. of the drawing, and I was doing sculptures in glass at the uh-huh. time, so how I use the sequence in a certain order uh-huh. for the, the panes of glass in a very large sculpture mm-hmm. installation, I did with tempered glass. Uh-huh. And also I was very interested in the magic squares. Uh-huh. Actually, my current work now is inspired by that group of drawings, uh-huh. but in a different manifestation of the magic squares. Uh-huh. So that was reflected in those drawings oh, that you mentioned. Oh. Mm-hmm. So you're working with these now then? I mean, yes. You're still right. working in this. Except that I don't use any actual numbers. Uh-huh. 
just the idea of the magic square which evokes the magic numbers uh -huh. without the need to write them down. So is it geometric then, in a sense? You, okay. I will show them, okay. yeah, in yeah, a way okay. they are yeah, geometric. We'll yeah. uh -huh. But it's also beyond geometry because they are embedded into the drawing. Uh -huh. So you have to also look for a long time yeah. at the drawing uh -huh. and then it sort of emerges into oh. view. Oh, interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Well, you mentioned before, which is interesting to me too, in the River Library, uh, the exhibition, the scrolls, right? The scrolls, yeah, the scrolls, that the, the writing is hidden in the scrolls. Right, is, the yeah. scrolls are like actual drawings, yes, uh -huh. rolled up mm -hmm. and sealed. Yeah. So you cannot see the drawings, mm -hmm. except a little bit. Of it. But in addition to that, there is another layer of invisibility, because the rolls are piled up, one next to the other, mm -hmm. one on top of another, yeah. so you cannot see the entire scroll either. Uh-huh. So that's, to me, interesting because you added more invisibility the way I installed it. And it's a beautiful form, the, the roll. I, it is. It, it, it relates maybe to the Torah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Which is, I you know, yeah. the Torah itself was sort of hidden from you uh -huh. in the ark, right, yes, in, the, yeah. in the chest. Yeah, the scrolls, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So I could ask you more about specific passages in the exhibit, like thresholds was interesting, I thought. Well, in thresholds... You can barely see the letters. Yes, uh-huh. In that group of drawings, which are parallel to a group of paintings, also mm -hmm. called thresholds, I did write with rubber stamps at the bottom, footnotes. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. You use rubber stamps in your, in your work rubber sometimes. Yes, footnotes. Yeah, yeah. You can barely read footnotes, yeah. but they're there. Mm -hmm. And to me, they're very meaningful, because many times when I read books, the most essential part of the book is in the footnotes. In the footnotes, same here. I always tell my students that the right, yeah. footnotes and the notes is what makes a library into something beyond just a sequence of single titles, like a shelf full of novels, but makes it into a real network because right. these things all link all together. So that suggests, evokes the idea of language. Uh -huh. Though there's no particular message to be mm -hmm. sent. Mm -hmm. And then I take some of the letters, say O, F, T, and then I place them in other areas of the painting or the drawing. Uh -huh. They are, again, they are barely seen or visible. Yeah. And I think seeing them, probably or hopefully, the viewer will connect to that. Mm -hmm. And they register that art is a language. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. The same way that the letter will emerge, uh -huh. a line or a mark or a figure. Yeah or a symbol, uh -huh. they all emerge from the same source. So I wanted to suggest uh, that yes, possibility. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, really fascinating. You mentioned one of the works that you're working on at the mo moment, uh, the geometric work. So is that the next work? Do you work one thing at a time, and that's uh, what you're, all your concentration is on, or do you have other things you work well, on? Well, I also? usually yeah. work, say, for instance, paintings or uh -huh. toys. I don't work on one at a time. I work on many at the same time. Yeah. That's why they oh, all yeah. become serious. Yes, uh -huh. yeah. And that takes a lot of time. For instance, a series of paintings be two or three years easily mm -hmm. to complete 10 oh. or 20 pieces. Oh. Like look at the wall, you can see. Yeah, I can see you're working on one, two, three, four and large more, panels yeah, and yeah, more. Yeah, oh, okay. So, yeah, series, yeah. And the same with the drawings. I go from one to another. Yeah. Because it seems to me that I want to spend time with the work. Mm -hmm. There is something that I call incubation time. Uh -huh which many times it's not doing anything, 
I mean, making things, but yeah. things are kind of going in the mind, yeah, uh-huh. even not yet articulated as a thought, mm-hmm. but something that becomes a thought eventually yeah. and becomes art eventually. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that takes time, you know? Oh, oh yeah, sure, I'm sure. Uh, the, the, the conceiving and the thinking. Another part, Picasso talks about this, is looking at the work after you've finished it. Is, is there a period where you have to see the work over of a course. period of time and you just stare and stare at it? That's because right. it's, Is it part of that? I think it's part of yeah. it. Okay. That connects me very deeply with Agnes Martin, for instance. Ah, yes, yeah. uh-huh. I do the same, yeah. yeah. Who's very dear to our heart. And, uh, oh, yes, very much so, to yeah, me, yeah, too. Yeah, so. Because this incubation, you know, it's another way of saying that in the, before the mind is conscious mm-hmm. as thought, it's not yet thinking, uh-huh. uh, it's like the dark which is invisible. Uh-huh. So when this eventually emerges, becomes the art of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. In another way, for instance, in nature, if you plant seeds, you don't see them because they are underground. Mm-hmm. But something happens to those seeds, the incubation, and eventually they emerge from the dark, Mm -hmm. under the ground, into the light above the ground. It happens even with humans, you know, when the embryo, the fetus, Uh is in the womb, you don't see it either, and begins as something very tiny, we call it a seed or an egg, whatever. So the incubation takes place in the dark mm-hmm. and eventually it, it comes becomes into light. light. Oh. So I think they are all parallel. Oh, I see, yeah. Yes. So that's what it's goes on in the dark, is the right. incubation yeah. in a sense. Happens, that's yeah. very, very interesting. I think know. it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it is yeah. almost universal. It <laughs> 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 strikes you, yes. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's the source. Of it. Good place to end, I think, maybe. So I'd like to thank you, Raquel, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your exhibit, Raquel Rabinovich, The Reading Room, currently on view in the Thompson Memorial Library at Vassar College. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate you talking to me and the opportunity to talk about my work. It was really wonderful. Thank you. It's wonderful for us also.